And as you're doing so, make sure you locate the insert for the bulletin notes or the, the sermon notes and uh, follow along as we study uh, together. Luke 1, verses uh, 26 and uh, through 38 will be the text that we're on this morning. Uh, a new section for us, but it really is not really a new section. It's, as we'll see, it's, it's more of the same. It's, this is the section known as the Annunciation of uh, Christ. And uh, it's the announcement concerning Jesus Christ um, given to Mary with regards to the upcoming birth or the upcoming uh, fact that she'll be pregnant with child and bearing the son. So um, this is that wonderful uh, passage. Let me invite you to stand together with me as we read together God's word. Hear now the word of our King. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and and a virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will, will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the holy offspring shall be called Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant or the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for this, your word, the privilege that you have us, that you've given us as your people to to study it and feast upon it, to take it and, and eat it, that it might be the joy and the delight of our souls. But Lord, we know that this is only the case insofar as it leads us to you. So, Father, we pray this morning that as we fellowship around this word, that we would not fellowship around simple uh, fun facts or or truths, but, Lord, these would lead us to a deeper hunger and a greater desire to love and know and serve and walk with you. And that, Lord, you would increase, we would decrease, that you would be exalted, that we would be joyed and privileged to be called by your name whatsoever way you send us and call us. So, Lord, we entrust this time to you now. Bless it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Looking at the first chapter of Luke, it truly is a literary masterpiece. Um, it has multiple layers, as we've seen. I hope that you've seen it by now. You've got the first layer, the narrative. Luke 1, 1 through 25, we've seen this incredible, glorious story of God's power, almighty power, coming to a couple, much like Abraham and Sarah, 
And yet this passage alludes uh, frequently to Hannah. And so you've got this image in our minds of Abraham, Sarah, Hannah, Hannah being persecuted, Sarah and Abraham um, being barren. And this incredible story of how God then um, promised uh, to this couple, this older couple, probably in their their late 50s, um, 60s, that they're going to have a son. And he'll be the forerunner. That's one letter. Second layer is the incredible juxtaposition of the names of these main characters who God in his providence raised up and named to be the main characters in this, in this story. Notice with me verse 5, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. We know that this is um, a dark time for God's people, right? A horrible time. Um, it's been darkness for 400 years. And God's people are left to wonder, has God forgotten us? Has God just forsaken us? Why has God remained mute when all these horrible things are taking place? And Herod's reign, regency as governor, was a very dark time for God's people. Well, we read in this passage, and it, it, just, it just stands out to us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named the Lord Remembers. Brothers and sisters, Zacharias is in God's uh, providence in this story because God is proclaiming to his people, he's never forgotten them. He's never forgotten you. You're always in his heart, always in his mind. And even though your circumstances might dictate or make you think that maybe God has forsaken me, the reality is that could never happen. Why? Because he remembers Zacharias. However, there are many people in this time of God's people who, because of that supposition, God has forsaken us, they had forsaken God in sin, just simply getting by. Well, now now that we learn that God remembers, what's God's message to those people? His message is John. The name John means God is gracious. The Lord remembers and he'll forgive your sin. He does forgive your sin. If you're in Christ, they're all forgiven. No condemnation. Well, then that leads you to ask, well, can God be trusted? Can I trust this being, Elizabeth? The Lord is is an oath, is what that means. In essence, God is true to his word. If he promises to grace you, he'll grace you. So that's that's a second layer. Then we have a third layer from verses, what is it, um, um, 5 through 25, in this section, we see this glorious chiasm where not only is what he is saying important, but how he says it. And this chiasm focuses on the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4, in essence, announcing through the details of Zacharias that the time of, of completion, of consummation, is at hand. All the promises of the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 3.15, all the way through of Jesus Christ and the coming Lord, and the age of Christ, Luke is telling us, has arrived. John the baptizer is in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. So incredibly, literarily, a masterpiece, where we get not only what is said, but how it's said, and, and to do such glorious things about God. And yet it just keeps getting better. Because the transition from 5 um, through 25 to our passage 26 through 38 is a transition in comparisons. There are, there are nine, bold, nine um, um, parts to uh, uh, chapter 5 through uh, 25, uh, 20, uh, verse 5 through verse uh, 25. Nine points which are paralleled in our passage this morning. 
the language. There are 11 points of repetition between our passage and the previous uh, passage. Clearly, God wants us to understand this as a unit. And yet what makes this even better is not the comparison, this demands it, but the moment we start comparing comes the contrast. Notice with me John, uh, Luke 1, verse 15. Notice about John. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Why? Well, he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He'll be great because he's a Nazarene, right? Or a Nazarite, excuse me. He'll be great because from the womb, he's been set apart to serve God as a Nazarite. We'll skip down to verse 32. Speaking of the Christ, he will be great. And that's unqualified. It doesn't tell us he'll be great because he'll do these things. It says he'll be great, period, stop. He'll be great, not because of what he does, but because of who he is. Notice the text goes on. He will be great. Why? And he will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of, of his father, David. The comparison here is massive. John was great. In fact, according to Matthew eleven eleven, greatest man born of woman. John was great, but Jesus Christ eclipses John's greatness. Notice the words of Philip Riken. And for all the similarities between John and this uh, passage, what Luke mainly wants us to see are the differences. Like a white paint chip next to an off-white paint chip, the comparison is made to show the contrast. So who is greater, John or Jesus? John's mother was barren. The mother of Jesus had never been with a man at all. John would be a prophet crying in the wilderness. Jesus would, deign on, would reign on David's everlasting throne. John would be great before the Lord. Jesus would be great without qualification. The son of the most high God. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John would prepare for God's coming, but when Jesus came, God was there in the flesh. Who is greater, John or Jesus? Luke argues from the lesser to the greater to give more glory to Jesus. Jesus was like John, but superior in every respect, infinitely superior. So you see, that's where we're, that's where we're going. This next section is all about the greatness, the awesomeness of the Messiah. And we're going to look at this in the, this week and the coming uh, couple weeks. This morning, however, we begin with the setting and the greeting. And this is a necessary, essential part for us to understand the greatness and the, uh, the majesty and the wonder of who Christ is and what he came uh, to do. Notice with me, therefore, the setting. And I want you to notice it is one of insignificance and potential despair. Okay, notice, it's very clear. 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, who we already saw from the last section, was a special class of angels set apart to be an angel or to be a messenger of the Lord from the presence of God. So the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, the focus of this passage, this introduction, is on the insignificance and the um, 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 hopelessness of the situation. Nazareth, we'll start there. Nazareth was this itsy-bitsy city 55 miles north of Jerusalem. 
in a basin on top of a mountain, which was one and a half miles wide. The population at this time was estimated to be about 150 to 200 people. So a very small city. And in the Old Testament times, Nazareth had absolutely no impact and no uh, participation in all of what we read in the Old Testament. This would be like uh, reading in, you know, nowhere uh, city in the U.S. Why there? I mean, who's heard of it, number one? And two, if you've heard of it, why there? That's Nazareth. Nazareth, because of its, um, where it was, and because of its location, was a perfect spot for hideouts. So again, 55 miles north, 150 people up on top of a mountain, which was very difficult uh, to get to. It was not um, um, on any trade route, major uh, trade route. Secondly, it doesn't appear on ancient maps, so no one really knew of this place. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, Josephus, or the Talmud. It's not mentioned at all, Um, but it was the perfect place for unseemly people such as criminals, thieves, murderers, and insurrectionists. If you were hunted by the law, you'd go there because the law wasn't there. You were out far and away. And that is why when Nathaniel heard that Jesus was, the, was from Nazareth, do you remember what he says? Um, where is it? John 1, 46, just a little bit later. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That place is filled with thieves, losers, bad people. Okay, so God sent Gabriel to this insignificant, lowly um, place filled with with losers. Now, notice verse 27. Three things are going to stick out to us here. He was sent to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Three things stick out in this little verse. First, the repetition of the word virgin. Did you notice it? And twice in this verse, to the virgin... And the very end, and the virgin's name was Mary. Skip down, if you would, to verse 34, and you'll get the same language, virgin. Now, to anyone who is familiar with Messianic prophecy, which Luke 1 is, 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 is a referencing, from Malachi 4 on, he's talking about Messianic prophecy about the coming king. So as you, as you read this, and Luke is now, if you will, thinking of this sign, blaring, flashing, virgin. Virgin, virgin, what should come to your mind? What comes to our mind is, is, is Isaiah 7. Turn with me there briefly. Isaiah uh, 7, very important passage for Luke because that's what this passage in, uh, in, in Luke is referencing. Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 7, real uh, quickly, 790 down to 740 B.C. was the golden era both for the northern kingdom uh, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It was the golden era. Jeroboam II was on the throne in the north. Uzziah was on the throne in the south. There was a time that they had no standing army. There was no external threat. So they were, it was wealthy, a time of wealth, ease, um, um, food, uh, uh, you know, resources, no problems. But all that started coming to a close around 740. Uzziah died around uh, uh, 740. So around 740, the kingdoms of the north are beginning to feel the threat of the Assyrians. This massive kingdom which would rise up out of, in the area of, of modern-day Babylon or Iraq. Okay? So this massive um, um, group was rising up. And the northern kingdoms of Syria, Ramah, and um, 
Israel were feeling that threat. So they decided how to handle that threat is to have all the ones in Palestine join together and form a unified front with an army. And that's where Isaiah 7 picks up on. Uh, follow along. It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans, the Syrians, have camped in, in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake like the wind. Why is he shaking? Skip down to verse 6. Because their plan was to go up against Judah, terrorize it, make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. They wanted a king on that throne that would join their, their coalition. So their plan is to come down, conquer Judah. And why this was a serious threat is that um, Ahaz has just lost in battle against Rezan, uh, uh, Rezan um, who we just read about. But now combined with the northern kingdom of Israel, there's no chance that they're going to uh, survive. So God sends Isaiah, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz and you and your son share Jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Ahaz is out there securing the water supply for the anticipated siege that was coming. Isaiah goes out to this place where he's securing the water supply, and this is his message, verse 4. And he say, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two snubs, stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. So brothers and sisters, God says, don't worry about it. These guys are smoldering brands, firebrands. That's what you get after a campfire the next morning. Right? You get these itsy-bitsy charred pieces of wood that might have a little bit of smoke that's just, all it takes is a breath and it's gone. That's what these two, two kings were and these nations were, what God said. That's what they are to you because I'm your God, right? Well, Ahaz, of course, is somewhat burdened. Um, God's will was to frustrate them in verse uh, 7. So Isaiah comes and says uh, to him, well, choose for yourself a sign, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to, uh, to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Sounds holy, but that's just a bad excuse. He already has commissioned men to go up to Assyria and call for their aid. So the southern kingdom of Judah would become a vassal nation to the Assyrians because of, of Ahaz. So he's not being pious here. I'm trusting God. It's wrong to, to, to ask for a, a sign. He's just being, he's sounding pious to um, basically um, um, divert uh, the congregation. Uh, um, of the conversation. So God is not to be deterred. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and this is where it becomes relevant for our passage. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and, you, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The word virgin here, Alma in the Hebrew, carries the idea of, an, uh, of, of a, um, a maiden woman, a young girl who has never known a man. So evidently at that time, because everyone would, would see this, this woman and this child as a sign, the guess is by most scholars is that this was probably a royal wedding about to take place, that this woman who's never known a man, 13-year-old girl, 14-year-old girl, is going to marry this man, and they're going to have a child. And you can watch the progression of this child. As, as this child grows up from, from birth to three years old, typically when you're weaned in that day, those kingdoms in the north will be gone. 
Well, Ahaz already knows they're going to be gone because the Assyrians are going to be coming. But God says, if you trust me, this horrible, dark time, notice the context of this prophecy in relation to what we're reading in Luke, right? At this time, I will deliver you. Now, the virgin here in Isaiah is not the same as the virgin birth, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks in verse 35, okay? This is simply an unmarried woman who had never known a man. However, the significance of Isaiah 7 is brought to the fore in Matthew 1.22. So now go back to the New Testament, get to Matthew, and then we'll get back uh, to Luke. Matthew 1, describing the, de- uh, the uh, details surrounding Christ's birth, we read, Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So, brothers and sisters, through the use of dual prophecy, there was a young maiden in Isaiah's day whose birth, whose, whose baby would grow in three years, show the demise of those kingdoms, and hence God's protection of his people. But that ultimately was a prophecy of Jesus Christ, which Luke wants us to bear in mind. Three times you, you, you get this, this neon flashing sign, virgin, 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 and that tells us that God is doing something amazing at this time with regards to the promise in Isaiah 7. In essence, just like in Luke 1, um, you know, um, 11 and following, he's quoting Malachi so that we knew back then, guys, this is taking place. You're at the time of fulfillment. All of God's promises are now yes in him. And now is that time. We get uh, this um, a companion passage saying, and indeed, Mary is going to have a child, and this child will be the child prophesied by God 740 years before this time of the coming Messiah who would deliver his people, who'd sit on the throne of David, etc., etc. So, brothers and sisters, that's a positive. You read this and you go, okay, in this no-name no town, insignificant town, something amazing is going to happen. And that is that God is telling through, uh, through the um, um, angel this incredible event. But from here it goes down, downhill. Notice with me the next word. The second word that sticks out is engaged. Right? So we read that she's engaged to be married. Now, in our culture, engagement is serious. You get engaged, it's a commitment. But it's not a legal commitment. Unlike marriage, in our day, marriage is a legal uh, commitment. In, in, in their day, engagement was a legal commitment. Just as legal, just as certain as marriage. So, for example, if you were engaged at that time, only death or divorce could sever your relationship. So if you're engaged, the only way out of it is by getting a formal divorce or by dying. And if a woman were found to be with child while she's engaged, she would suffer the fate of an adulterer, which was execution. She'd be killed, stoned, most likely. Um, The engaged couple would be referred to as a husband and wife during the time of their engagement. um, If her betrothed uh, man died, if he died, the girl would be uh, considered a widow. Now, it was short of marriage in that they didn't live together and they did not have relations. But it was that serious. So get this. Gabriel comes down. This is the high point of redemptive history. 
This is the greatest point from Genesis um, since the fall, right? Genesis 3.15 on. It's the greatest point. And what impact would this point have on a godly young woman in this day living? What, what impact? Think of it. Well, now she's found to be a child. So first of all, her reputation is gone. Secondly, she could be executed. So you read this announcement, and we read and go, oh, it's a beautiful announcement. We read it so many times because of Christmas. We don't realize what this, the, the bind this put Mary in. She's a servant of God. At the very end, be it, a, be it a, according to your words, a godly woman, servant of Christ. And what does serving in God's kingdom result in her life? Threat of death, becoming a social outcast, hardship and difficulty. Third word I want you to look at is her name, and that is the word Mary. Just like Zacharias and Elizabeth and John had significance in the context of the pericope, it, it should not surprise us that Mary does too. You know what the word Mary means? It comes from the Hebrew word Marah, where we get Miriam, but Marah. And the word for Marah is the word for bitter. Okay, so God came to a woman who should be embittered. That's the idea. Where is she living? In a no place, no name, no name place, amongst criminals. She's now going to be with child. She's engaged. Woohoo, wonderful. But now she's with, with child. Horrible situation to be in. Lord, this is incredibly inconvenient to be a servant of yours. I thought serving you would make my life easier. All it's done in Mary's life is compound the difficulty. Okay? And brothers and sisters, you got to realize from Isaiah, what's the context of the coming Messiah? Time of, 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 of difficulty, darkness, despair. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. That's the context where we foresee, greet, and meet the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you want to walk with Christ today. Nothing's changed. For you to enjoy Christ today will mean suffering. It always is that way. Listen to a couple passages. John 15, the world hates you, Christ said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. How's that for being a servant of Christ? Hey, you want to become... A believer, sure, the world's going to hate you because they hate your Savior. Remember the word that I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what happens if you follow Jesus Christ. First Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised because, brothers and sisters, that's where God's work, God's grace is operative. And that's exactly where we are with this passage. It's stressing loneliness, as Kent Hughes has it in, in your, in your um, notes. Um, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's what happens. And now she's in this bind because of Christ. Horrible. Horrible. So why isn't she going? We know she doesn't get bitter. Why doesn't she become her namesake? Why doesn't she become bitter? What's the answer? Well, notice with me the greeting, 28 and 29. Speaking of Gabriel, 
and coming in to her house. So she's in Nazareth, small village, nowhere, uh, in no place, weird time, and the angel is in her living room. Coming into her house, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Real quickly, the Latin Vulgate, 4th century B.C., or A.D., sorry, A.D., translates this, mistranslates this as um, full of grace, right? Hail Mary, full of grace. Well, the Catholic Church took that Latin mistranslation and they, from it, they created this doctrine known as uh, that Mary is the repository of grace from which we can draw. So Mary has so much grace. She's full of grace. It's overflowing. Hail Mary, full of grace. Overflowing that you and I, if you'll just pray to Mary, she'll give you grace. Incredible. And because of this false translation, uh, this poor translation, and this false doctrine has led to a lot of other false doctrines in the Catholic Church. Mary was, uh, is uh, believed to be immaculately uh, conceived and so with Christ without sin. Why? Because she's full of grace. Mary um, enjoyed a perpetual virginity. Why? Because she's full of grace. She ascended into heaven in bodily form in, in her assumption, just like Enoch walked with God and was no more. Mary did not die. She ascended. Why? Because she's full of grace. She is a co-redemptrix with Christ. If you want to be saved, you need Christ, and you go to Mary. Why? Because she's full of grace. Brothers and sisters, that is a, such a horrible translation and, su- and hence horrible doctrine. Notice the text one more time. The word um, for favored one, it's a verb. It's a present, I'm sorry, it's a perfect passive. Let's talk about it. As a passive, therefore it has nothing to do with what she can give. It's what's given to her. This text says nothing about what she's able to give. This word in the passive tells us it's what's done to her. And as a perfect, it tells us it's something that began in the past whose, whose um, impact comes to the present. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, teleo, which means to end. He said, to die. Perfect. What I just did has begun now and will always be present in our lives. This word is a perfect It's a passive uh, perfect. Something happened to Mary which would not be undone. What is it? Well, the word for favored. The root of that is grace. And that's what this is saying is, Mary, you are the recipient of God's grace in your life. You see the same expression used throughout the Bible. David was highly favored by God. He was a man who received grace from God, Daniel 10. Samuel found favor both with the Lord and with men, 1 Samuel 2. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, favor, Genesis 6, 8. Moses found favor in God's sight, Exodus 33, 17. In other words, none of these people were, were, were made repositories of grace. They simply, this is simply saying, God graced them with, with saving faith. He saved them. I love the quote of Martin Luther and his characteristic style. Wrote of this verse. You've got it there in your, in your notes. He said of this verse, um, to think of Mary from this text being a repository of grace will, would require a keg of beer before interpreting 
How do you get that? From the Greek, you don't. He, this is talking about God's blessed her grace, just like Zacharias, right? Which, which, which we saw, verse 6. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. What they were and, and how they lived was, was due to God. God's grace in their life. God's working in their life. At this very dark, dark time, God graced some people. And those some people co- constituted a remnant. Anna, Simeon, Zacharias, Elizabeth. Now, are they sinners? Oh, aren't they ever? We saw what Zacharias is going to do here soon. They're horrible sinners. They continue to sin. But brothers and sisters, that does not invalidate the perfect. It doesn't invalidate the fact that once God gives you grace, it's, it's forever. Mary was, was a recipient of God's saving grace that would never depart from her. She couldn't lose it, no matter how hard or how difficult her life would be. Incredible. So why is it that Mary did not respond to all of what was going around her with bitterness, like so many of her countrymen? So many Jews in this day had lost hope and had given up because of the dark days in which they lived. Why didn't Mary give up? She's a 13-year-old girl, estimated because that's when they got engaged. 12 to 13 years old. Who here is 13 years old, right? Look at a 13-year-old girl. This young girl was granted the grace of God such that her life was saturated by the Word of God. You go, how do you know that? Well, brothers and sisters, look at the Magnificat of Mary. Just turn your page over to verse 46. That Magnificat, what her, her rejoicing um, in praising God is, is, is saturated with the Word of God. She's a woman of the Lord who loves Christ and submissive to him and knows his word just like Zacharias and Elizabeth had to have if they were, in, if they were righteous in God's sight and walked blamelessly in all of the word of God. These men and women were genuine servants who, who, who were saturated by God's word. Okay? Um, why wasn't she bitter? It wasn't have anything to do with her. It had everything to do with what God did to her. God saved her. God gave her a relationship with Christ. God forgave her sin. God brought her to himself and held, him, held her in his hands. And her response, would you notice it, verse 29, but she was greatly troubled in the statement, as you'd expect. Anytime a, human, a sinner is in the presence of God, a theophany or an angel of the Lord, they all fall down. For example, Peter when Peter had the scales come off his eyes to see who he really was standing before, Jesus Christ, we read, but when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's what sinners do. That's what, that's what God's people do in the presence of God or an angel. Isaiah 6, Isaiah's response when he beheld Christ, um, and we know this was Christ from, from John 12, 41, when he beheld Christ, Christ in the year of Uzziah's death. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the King, the Lord of hosts. Many other examples I could give you. Abraham, Genesis 17. Joshua, chapter uh, 
verse 5, or uh, chapter 5. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1, Daniel, Daniel 8, Peter, James, and John, Matthew 17, Revelation 1, 19, 22. Paul, Acts 9, and Acts uh, 26. The woman at Jesus' tomb before the angel, Luke 24, 5. All these people, the moment they are confronted with, with eternity, with God, or an angel sent by God to them, they fall down. They're in awe. They're in reverence. That's exactly what you get here. So we read that, that Mary's response, but she was greatly troubled at this statement. It wasn't so much at what he says or said. It's the fact that this angel was in her living room speaking to her after 400 years of silence. Think about that for a second. Mary doesn't know about Elizabeth. We learn that from verse 36. Oh, and behold, your uh, relative is with child. So she is clueless that God's already spoken once, that God's broken his silence. In Mary's mind at this moment, this is the first time God has spoken in four, over 400 years. Malachi dates 444 B.C. In over 400 years. And it's to me... What is going on? And so we read in the last part, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. You can imagine her mulling over. What does it mean? What does it mean that God would send an angel to speak to in my home? He came to my home in nowhere land. This insignificant 13-year-old girl who in that culture would not have been seen by anybody. Right? Me? Why me? What's God doing? What in the world is God about ready to do? Right? That's the idea. Reverence, awe. So my question to you is this. What is it that stopped Mary from being what she did? Why wasn't she bitter? Now, just as a footnote, while the Roman Catholic Church exalts Mary beyond belief, and we criticize that rightly, nevertheless, the broad evangelical Protestant Church demotes her, denies her, ignores her, and we should denounce that too. Brothers and sisters, you're dealing with a 13-year-old woman who loves, who, who loves Christ, who's in his word, who's a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. But unlike her other countrymen older than her, who were followers of, of God, but had, had, their hearts had grown cold, they were struggling in their walks with God. God, why the hardship? Why the murder by Herod? Why, so, why the dead babies? It's going to come out, right, in, in just a couple years. Why all this horrible hardship amongst your people? Mary wasn't bitter. Why? Because of the grace of the Lord in her life. Now you go, that's the answer. How can you not be bitter, embittered in the world in which you live? How can the Cassidy family have their dad and husband and the like go through cancer and most likely die? We don't know what God's going to do there. And not feel a little bit of twins of bitterness that, God, why? We prayed. We prayed for so much for Dad. How can they not be bitter? Because, brothers and sisters, they're the recipients of the grace of God. And so are you. You say, I don't see the, the connection. How does that do it? Well, brothers and sisters, get this. Well, listen to Hebrews 4. Don't take it from me. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'm going to read it. Since then, he, we, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways and all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore, in light of who we have as our Savior, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help. And there's a final statement. What is it? Do you guys know it? In time of need. Brothers and sisters, you've got to understand something. God's grace does not come to you when you're in the day of ease. It's very clear in Scripture. Grace to help in time of need. He gives you what you need when you need it. He doesn't just throw grace upon you in the easy time. No, he, in order for you to know the grace of Christ like Mary would know the grace of Christ, she'd have to live in bitter days. That's exactly the context of Isaiah 7, of Luke chapter 1, of the coming of Jesus Christ, of the announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ. This humble, mean, lowly, difficult city, time, era. Because of that, brothers and sisters, God met her at her point of need and graced her. Brothers and sisters, I walk away from this little introduction. I see the importance of this in the context of the coming verses, which are all about the exaltation, the greatness of our Savior. You and I will know this greatness, not because we go out and get persecuted, but you and I will come to know this, great, this greatness as you and I cling to Christ in our greatest time of need. Cling to him. Cling to him today. Cling to him tomorrow. But don't be surprised, First Peter, at the fire ordeal that comes, that comes upon you. It's coming. It will come. Why? Because being a follower of Christ makes the world hate you. It makes the world persecute you. Difficult times are coming in our lives. But you can be sure that so is the grace of God. If difficult times are coming and in, in it, in it weighed a billion pounds, the grace of God would weigh, uh, would weigh would be infinitely, right? You wouldn't be able to weigh it. That's how much, how great the grace of God will be in your life. So our call this day is to set our focus upon Christ, upon knowing him and loving him and walking with him and serving him and cultivating a walk with him where you talk with him. And he talks back, not in your heart, but in his word. And you respond to that word. And you do it in the context of uh, grace is best shared, brothers and sisters, the, the context of the, the fellowship of God's people, encouraging each other as the day draws near. Brothers and sisters, that's the call. Respond to this as someone who says, Lord, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. May that be what we say. But brothers, that death will not come in our lives so long as our focus is on living an easier, safer, productive life that comes when our focus is on knowing, fellowshipping, and um, abiding with the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace as his people to indeed understand that grace comes in the, in the difficult time, in the times of Mary, the times of bitterness. But brothers and sisters, it's abundant. And it will lifts us up and enables us. Let's go to the Lord this morning, seeking him accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I think of Paul and his comment that though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day.
for those momentary light afflictions, which were not momentary or light for him, but in the context of eternity were momentary and light for him. Those momentary light afflictions are producing for him and for us an eternal way to glory, far beyond all comprehension, while we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. God grant us the grace that that would be our focus and our gaze. You have graced us, Lord, and we're so grateful that we likewise could be ascribed or um, addressed as favored ones. Lord, the same as being called a saint, the same as being called a, um, a disciple. Lord, we are your favored ones, not because of anything we have done, but because of Jesus Christ. God, give us grace now, we pray, to be a people who would find our delight and glory and joy to be in you. Lord, I know we run Unlike cars that run on gasoline, we run on Christ. Give us the grace, O Lord, your people, to sup deeply upon you, that we might enjoy you by running upon Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the table.